You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Seth, you do a lot of travel. I do, yes. Would you say you go to exotic locations? Well, you know, by some people's definitions, they're exotic. They're not places no one has ever gone before. But... I know. It really gets at what, what is exotic. Yes, what does that I, mean? Well, I, I guess it's just not on the usual list of tourist destinations where you find thousands and thousands of people have uh, posted photos and on uh, whatever. <laughs> what's, what's the most interesting or exotic place you've been to? Well, I've been to small towns in Egypt that, you know, not too many people have gone to. That's fairly exotic. Uh, places in Africa where, you know, there are just a couple of hundred villagers and they don't get too many people coming through. So, you know, in some sense, those are exotic. Well, if you were to ask NASA what sort of exotic places they would want to go to, they would come up with another list. And in fact, there's a pretty impressive list of places that we're at right now visiting, at least remotely. Yeah, there are a lot of spacecraft out there. Of course, we've got the Curiosity rover on Mars. We have spacecraft around the moon, Mercury, Saturn. Uh, we have the New Horizons spacecraft en route to Pluto. Meanwhile, you've got these new private companies making rockets. I mean, it just seems that space is trending. That's right. We're making a big push into the solar system, and we'll explore some of those destinations in this program. I'm Molly Bentley. And I'm Seth Shostak. Welcome to Big Picture Science. And, uh... We're going to go out into the nearby solar system. And, of course, our first logical stop once we get beyond the moon is Mars. I was hoping you would say Mercury. It's always Mars. Mars, well, Mars, Mars. Why Mars? We, we actually do have spacecraft going to Mercury. In fact, they're orbiting as we speak. Uh, Mars, because Mars is the most Earth-like planet of all the planets uh, in our solar system, Mars is the most intriguing because it reminds us of home and it, there may be Martians and that sort of thing. You know, we've had spacecraft around Mars for a long time. We've sent a lot of hardware to Mars. Some of it has actually made it. And uh, we see things that are uh, very, very interesting, like, you know, gullies running across the surface, uh, dust storms running across the surface. But one set of images that have been creating quite a buzz come from the orbiters that have been circling the planet for quite a long time. These are images of dark trails of something over the surface of the planet. Yeah, they're, they're kind of streaky. They're, they're like, I don't know, if you walk down the beach with a leaky pail of water and you saw these dark, you know, spots or these dark sort of meandering uh, connected features on the, on the surface of the sand. Those have been seen on Mars for quite some time, but people are now beginning to pay attention to them because they suggest that there might be some liquid water near the surface of Mars today. But the story of water on Mars is not a new one. We know that Mars was once a watery planet. Well, we think so. And it's true that we find water on Mars, it seems like every two weeks, but it's usually ice. 
you know, finding ice is not so hard. They did that 250 years ago. But finding liquid water near the surface, that would be a very interesting discovery. And SETI Institute planetary geologist Cynthia Phillips has been studying these streaks, trying to figure out exactly what is causing them. Could it be liquid water? What's interesting about these slope streaks is that we actually, we've seen new ones form. And when I say we've seen new ones form, we haven't actually watched them in the process of forming, but we've taken before and after pictures. And so back when the Viking mission was in orbit around Mars back in the 1970s, they observed some of these features. And the cameras on Viking weren't all that good, but they did see these strange kind of linear features on the edges of some craters and on some, some uh, faults and mountains. And they identified them and said, oh, you know, these are kind of interesting. When we came back and started observing Mars in what's more the modern area of planetary science starting in the late 90s, we went back and imaged some of the same places that we saw during Viking. And we saw that some of the Viking streaks were still there. Some of them were gone. Some of them had disappeared. They totally faded away. And we saw new streaks. So that told us that over this 20-year period, these streaks had changed. New ones had formed and old ones had faded away. Well, well, that's unusual. I mean, to see something change on Mars. Mars, you know, first glance, it looks like it's dead, Jim. I mean, nothing changes. The Viking landers that actually got down onto the surface of Mars, they were making photos every day. And although Carl Sagan and others were looking for things that might walk by and, and stuff like that, they never saw anything. It didn't look like anything changed. That's correct. And so what's even cooler with these slope streaks is not only do we see changes over this 20-year period between Viking and now, we've actually seen changes over one image to the next, one orbit to the next. So over time periods that are much shorter, on the, on the period of months, we've seen new streaks form. So that tells us that these are some of the most active geologic processes going on today on Mars, is the formation of these streaks and also the fading of older streaks. Well, this sounds like water. I mean, it sounds like there, there might be just some water just a few inches underneath the, the surface of Mars. And for some reason, this water turns liquid and it just runs down the slope for a while and you see a streak. Right. And so that's why when people saw these streaks, they really look like they're formed by some kind of liquid, liquid water, maybe some kind of briny, dirty, dusty flow on the surface. They really look liquid. They really look like channels that are formed by some kind of liquid flow. And so that got people really excited because, of course, when we start thinking about water on Mars, then that's exciting already for life. What these streaks are, if they are formed by some sort of liquid technique, they are water that's on Mars now, right? So we're not talking about water way back in the geologic past. We're talking about water there now. Of course, it's not that simple. We're not positive that these things form because of water. There's also a class of models that's completely dry. So basically what's going on is these streaks form on slopes that are very dusty. So we think that there's this thick layer of dust. If you've ever seen a picture of a dust storm on Mars, you know that the surface is really dusty and dust just gets blown around all over the place. There's actually these global dust storms where the whole planet gets covered with dust. You can't see anything through it. If you were in orbit, it would just look like this big dust ball. You can't see any of the surface features. When that dust finally settles out, it's been redistributed and kind of spread over the whole planet. So these slopes are covered with this layer of dust. So one of the theories is that this dust just gets steeper and steeper and steeper until finally at some point you get this small dust avalanche that's triggered by something. So in this dry model, there's no liquid at all. It's just a dust avalanche. It flows down slope. It removes uh, some of the dust. 
and it exposes kind of darker, less dusty terrain that's underneath it. Well, uh, I think the real uh, money question here is, which is it? I mean, if, if it's a, just a dust ball avalanche, I mean, that's somewhat interesting. But if it's really water under there, that's more interesting because that would suggest to me that what you ought to be doing is proposing a, a robotic experiment that goes to Mars, lands on one of these streaks, uh, digs it up, and looks at it under a microscope and see if there are any microbes in that liquid water. How, how can we know whether it's dust or whether it's water? That's a really good question. People are studying these things right now, trying to figure out if it's wet or if it's dry. And the, the problem with the wet models is that liquid water isn't stable on the surface of Mars because Mars's atmosphere is so thin and it's so cold that if you actually just exposed a nice big puddle of liquid water, it would just boil and freeze and, and it would be gone. So it's actually really hard to get water to flow on the surface of Mars today, so under current conditions on Mars. One possibility is if instead of having just plain old liquid water, if you had some kind of like briny, maybe maybe dusty, sort of muddy flow, maybe you could get it so that it was still sort of liquidy, it could flow like a liquid, it had some water in it, but it wasn't just a, a, a nice clean flow of, of liquid water. That's possible. You know, Cynthia, more than 100 years ago, Percival Lowell, the famous uh, Boston Brahmin astronomer, was looking at Mars, and he thought he saw every spring, right, water racing down these canals, these canals that weren't actually there, uh, you know, toward, toward the equator and sort of advancing as the season advanced and so forth. This sounds like something similar, except that this is not an optical illusion. These streaks are real. When are we going to know and when are we going to explore them if that's warranted? Well, we need to do a lot more observation from orbit. And of course, the, these are new features that are forming, but they're a lot smaller than anything that good old Percy thought that he saw. So, you know, it's not that he had super amazing X-ray vision eyesight and could see these from, from his telescope back on Earth. But, you know, there are seasonal changes on Mars, and the formation of these streaks could be one of them. Cynthia Phillips, thanks for uh, talking to me. Thank you, Seth. Cynthia Phillips is a planetary geologist at the SETI Institute. So those dark streaks on the planet might be water or they might be avalanches of dust, demarcation in the dust, right? Well, they might just be dust. Yes, that would be disappointing. But, you know, research is all about surprises, so don't give up. Look, the point is that if these streaks do turn out to be wet caused by water, then, well, then we have access to that water right near the surface of Mars. So you wouldn't need to send, you know, some robotic drilling rig, or Bruce Willis for that matter, to Mars to drill down to a deep, deep, deep underground aquifer. And of course, if there's water near the surface, there might be... Life. Yeah. You fed me that one. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> because Na NASA's mantra is follow the water. Where there's water, there could be life. But we don't have to wait for further analysis of the streaks on Mars to hit water. Well, it depends on where you want to hit it, but it's true. The, there are at least three moons of Jupiter that could be all wet, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto. They're all moons of the big guy that we think have hidden oceans, particularly Europa, which is estimated to have twice as much water beneath its hard, icy skin as all the oceans of the Earth combined. But that's what's tricky. How do you determine if there is water underneath that icy skin? Well, you don't do it by using divining rods, as intriguing as that sounds. It's all about magnetism. Now, Jupiter has a very strong magnetic field, much stronger than what we have here on Earth, a magnetic field that twists your compass around. Now, when Europa moves through Jupiter's strong magnetic field, it develops a bit of a magnetic field itself. That's just elementary electricity and magnetism theory. 
And that implies that there's some sort of electrical conductor under the surface of Europa. And it's unlikely to be a big ball of wire. But there's something there that's conducting electricity, and salt water would really fill the bill. So we figure there's probably a hidden salty ocean under the ice of Europa. Well, Brittany Schmidt, a research scientist at the University of Texas, and her team have the best evidence yet of a subterranean lake on Jupiter's moon under that icy surface. Today it would be a balmy minus 180 degrees or so C centigrade. Minus 180 degrees. So uh, how could there be a lake on Europa. That sounds pretty cold to me. Yeah, if it was on the surface, it would be quite hard, and and pieces of it probably are, but down deep, it actually is much warmer, so where water may actually exist. So you're talking about lakes that we couldn't see from, say, orbit around, I mean, if we were flying over Europa in some sort of spacecraft, we wouldn't look down and say, hey, there's something that uh, looks like a lake. Correct. What we see on the surface is what you might see from lake ice. There's still a lake down underneath, but uh, you can't see the lake up on the surface. It's protected by the ice shell. So we see the surface indication that that, that lake exists, but not the lake itself, per se. Well... My understanding of the best models we have for Europa, and they are models, but they, they sound fairly convincing, is that you've got this, you know, this layer of ice on the outside, this skin, this thick skin. I, I don't know how thick it is, 10 kilometers, 15 kilometers, something like that. Very hard ice because it's very cold. And then underneath that, there might be a liquid ocean, right? Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we think there's between 10 and 20 kilometers or so of ice on the outside. And just the surface is going to be really hard and cold. There's a temperature gradient. So actually the, the bottom ice is going to be exactly the same temperature as, as ice on the Earth that's, that's floating in the ocean. Uh, and so then there's a thick ocean underneath that, actually you know, more than 10 times thicker than our own ocean. Okay, so if I were to slice Europa in half, some, something for the weekend, I would find this thin little, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like an M&M. The outside shell would be, you know, 10 or 15, 10 or 20 kilometers thick ice. Underneath that, liquid water, salty water for, what, you know, 100 kilometers more. And then whatever rock or whatever is the inside of Europa, right? Yep, you would, you would see the outer... 10% or so is is the water ice part. It's the ice on the outside and then the water underneath, um, only about 150 kilometers deep, and Europa's radius is about 1,500 kilometers. It's about the size of our own moon. So underneath that, it's actually very much like the Earth. Okay. So where is this lake in regard to all of this? I mean, is it near the top of the outer ice layer? Is it right down there just before the ocean begins? Where is it? It's, it's closer to the surface, but it's still pretty far from the surface. Uh, these can exist in the region about three kilometers below the surface, where it's sufficiently warm that liquid water can exist, but it's protected from the outside. And actually, it has to happen fairly close to the surface in order for the right processes to get together. Now, you said that I could recognize a frozen lake here on the Earth, but I recognize it because of the outlines. I mean, you know, it has a shoreline, whatever. How, how do you recognize this lake on Europa? The reason that we think that that's there is because we see an area of the surface that's actually fairly distinct, fairly circular, and it's collapsed down, and it's actually got breaking up ice on top of it. So it looks like an ice shelf breaking up or, or an ice environment on Earth breaking up. Is that a fairly certain interpretation? I mean, you look down and you see what looks like, I don't know, sort of a pile of chunky ice. It wouldn't be as certain if we hadn't seen the same processes happening here on the Earth. 
Now, this place on Europa where you think you found a lake, I mean, I've seen lots of pictures of Europa, and, you know, the, and the, the ones I show in my lectures are you know, these sort of look like big flat icebergs. It, it's sort of like a jigsaw puzzle that somebody's kind of messed up a little bit. Is, is that the kind of region you're talking about? Yeah, those regions are called chaos terrains. They're a very unique feature on Europa. We don't see them anywhere else. And there are several chaos features, and they range in size from a few kilometers across, five or ten kilometers, to things the size of the ones that we're talking about, which are hundreds hundreds of kilometers across. So um, Thera Macula is about 80 kilometers in one direction, about 100 or so in the other direction. Okay, so this is a pretty big subsurface lake. Any idea how long it's been there? Well, that's a really good question. We, uh, we would estimate anywhere between a few tens of thousands of years, uh, probably in the 100,000-year range or so, uh, maybe even longer, depending on the thermal gradient. So it depends on really what what Europa's inside temperature is. Even if this lake is a couple hundred thousand years old, is the water that's in that lake just melt water from the ice that was there, or could it be water that's come up from down below? Because Clearly, Europa is one of those places it's had liquid water for four billion years, mm-hmm. right, whatever. And so, you know, it might have some sort of life in it. And if some of that life could get trapped in one of these lakes, then, you know, maybe all you have to do is send Bruce Willis to Europa and have him drill a scant couple of miles down in, <laughs> and he could find Europans. I'm glad you brought that up because the the long-term driving hypothesis has been that the ocean is where the action is at. And if you look at the Earth, actually the whole ice column is a pretty good place to do business. There are organisms that live under three kilometers of ice on Earth that are very, very happy. And they live in various different systems. And so it doesn't have to be limited to the ocean. And of course, if there's life in the ice shell, there's probably life in the ocean. So what's interesting is that those that those lakes needn't be water from the ocean to be interesting in terms of habitability. I'm not a I'm not addicted to photosynthesis in terms of uh, its need to be there. And so I think it says something interesting that Europa is is still is a newer place than than maybe even any of us imagined in in many cases. Well, finally, Brittany, if you were suddenly placed in charge of NASA or some other space agency, would you would you mount an expedition to Europa with some sort of robotic drill and try and get down to that lake? Man, I would love to do that. I I think we need to know where to land first is is the big question. A lot of people get really we get really excited about landing on Europa and landing on Europa is my goal. I want us to go and drill into the ice, whether it's the ice shell or getting down to a lake or getting to to close subsurface water. But we won't know where that water is right now unless we go with something else, uh, which is actually why I, I went to Texas to, to learn how to do radar, because radar can actually go find it. It's, it's kind of like a diviner. You know, you can go and, and look for the water in the subsurface. So then when we take a lander, we know we're landing someplace really interesting and really compelling. And I think definitely space drill to Europa, you know, or is, is our, has to be our number one priority. I can't imagine why not. Uh, Europa could be habitable today. You know, we could have fish and and ice, you know, ice bacteria and and exciting things like that. And I'm I'm just really compelled by that. And I think there are a lot of people that are as well. Brittany Schmidt, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Brittany Schmidt is a research scientist at the University of Texas at Austin. All right, Mars, Europa, these are places where we've either sent or will be sending robotic explorers. Coming up, a destination where we might send not just robots, but people. Think of Bruce Willis' B-movie. It's as the world's turn on big-picture science. 
Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Welcome back to Big Picture Science and As the World's turn. My screen's full. They're all over the place. Bogies are breaching the atmosphere from Finland down the North American seaboard. When most people think of asteroids, they worry that a rogue asteroid could slam into our planet and hope that Bruce Willis is there to save them. Again with Bruce Willis. (laughs) He's part of the program now. (laughs) And that asteroid would incinerate a whole lot of real estate. But this next idea doesn't involve blowing up a rock in space. I'm talking about asteroids as a destination. Uh, These objects are, you know, they're floating around the solar system in their orbits, and some are near and some are far, a lot between Mars and Jupiter. But forget about having them come here for a moment. That's something we're actually trying to avoid. Instead, why don't we go there? Okay, but we need a reason to go there. Paul Abel, a planetary geologist at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, can think of four. If we actually want to get out and explore the solar system, getting to destinations uh, like beyond the Earth-Moon system to Mars and other places in the solar system, uh, we want to practice and we want to do things. So uh, the near-Earth asteroids give us an opportunity to do that. So that's one thing, human exploration. Two is um, for science. The near-Earth asteroids are the leftover building blocks of the solar system. We can get a lot of information about how the solar system formed and how the Earth-Moon system formed and how maybe even we came to be on, on the planet. So we've got exploration, we've got science. We also have resources on these asteroids. Some of these asteroids are full of precious metals. Some of them are full of water. Those can be used for in-situ resource utilization, used in place, and help us explore the solar system. So think of supply depots floating around in space that we can access. Also, some of these asteroids can be applicable to other destinations. So there's moons of Mars, Phobos and Deimos. If we find out how to utilize resources on asteroids, we can use the resources on Phobos and Deimos and actually help explore Mars in itself. In other words, we have supply depots floating around Mars that we can use to help us get to the surface of Mars and back. And lastly, but not uh, least importantly, is planetary defense. Uh, There's going to come a time when one of these asteroids is going to be coming on a collision course with Earth. It'd be nice to figure out how we deal with that. And having humans going to near-Earth asteroids allows us to learn a lot about these objects and help us develop uh, future mitigation technologies and strategies to defend the planet. All right, here's a question people probably ask you every time you bring this up at a dinner party. Hey, do we have to send people? Can't we just do this robotically? You can do this robotically, but you don't get nearly the amount of information that you do with human beings. And in fact, everywhere we go uh, in the solar system, we're going to send robots. Um, We send robotic precursors, and we do that to get a handle on what type of environments we're dealing with, the type of science equipment that we want to take. But if you really want to do true science and get a handle on some of the things 
that are there, especially at depth and inside these objects, you really have to send people. And especially if we want to get off planet, if we have to um, want to learn how to live off planet and expand into the solar system, the near-Earth asteroids provide us a great way of doing it. And you can't do that with robots. I think when a lot of people think about the asteroids, if, if they think about them at all, they think, of them about them, they think about them in terms of what they did to the dinosaurs. You've mentioned planetary protection, but they also probably have heard of the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. So there's you know, a lot of asteroids there. These are asteroids that are a little easier to reach. Right. So I'm not talking about asteroids. The, the main asteroid belt, as, as you mentioned, which are uh, between, located between uh, Mars and Jupiter, we're talking about near-Earth objects, near-Earth asteroids that pass very close uh, to the planet and sometimes even impact the planet. Um, the dinosaurs didn't have a space program. We do. And uh, I will borrow a slogan from a, a T-shirt and uh, Larry Niven, uh, who basically said, you know, asteroids are nature's way of saying, how's that space program coming along? It really is. And, and, you know, the dinosaurs had a space program. They could probably save themselves. We do, and, and we should take advantage of that. Yeah, there would probably be a big hole in the back of my chair to get my tail through. Well, we have a space program. Does this mean that we're actually going to one of these asteroids? I mean, how is our space program coming along when it comes to visiting an asteroid? We have some plans. Um, obviously, one of the things you're going to need is you need a rocket. You need a big rocket, and we have those plans in development. Uh, we're making the uh, Space Launch System, which is a very large rocket, very similar to the Saturn V vehicle that we had for the Apollo program. And then you also need a capsule. You need a way of, of sending your crew on top of that rocket. So we're talking about crewed missions, uh, four astronauts at least, uh, going out to these objects in the Orion capsule. This is a capsule, again, very similar to the Apollo-type capsule that will go out with other systems, maybe a habitat module, go out and to these asteroids and, and come back. Round-trip time, we're hoping for less than 180 days initially and then expanding that up uh, further as we go out further out to these asteroids. Now, you're talking about a NASA mission, but aren't there plans by some of these private space entrepreneurs also to uh, mine the asteroids, if not send people to them? Yeah, Planetary Resources is a company based in Seattle. They've just recently announced that their intent is to mine these asteroids. And uh, first thing first is you got to find them, and that's one of the things that NASA also has to do is we know there's lots of asteroids out there. Um, we have a little over right now 9,900 9, known, but there's very, very many more asteroids out there. In fact, we only know about 1% of the entire population. So the first thing you do is you build uh, a space telescope. We have ground-based telescopes that we're using to find these, but uh, space telescopes help us find them much more quickly. And then we need to characterize them. We're not to figure out what they're made of. And Planetary Resources has the intent of doing that initially and then finding those prime targets and then sending robots out to actually mine them and return some of the stuff to Earth. A number of years ago, uh, the physicist Freeman Dyson made a projection that, you know, our future was not so much to have colonies on the moon or Mars or, or maybe not even just the orbiting space colonies that have been talked about in the past, but that our descendants will be living on the asteroids because there's a lot of real estate on all those asteroids. Does that make any sense? Could you really live the good life on an on an asteroid? Well, it would be very difficult to live on an asteroid. I would... I would probably say maybe it would be possible to live inside an asteroid. Some of these asteroids we think are rubble piles. They're actually very low density, very low porosity, and you could actually burrow your way in there, put a habitat, and actually maybe uh, rotate it at 1, 1 G so you get uh, your artificial gravity. Um, more importantly, you're shielded from the radiation of space. 
you have a lot of material between you and the outside radiation, so automatically you have your little home that you can tool around in the, in the solar system. What about things like water and air? Air will, and water can be processed from some of the materials. I mean, again, this gets back to some of the in-situ resource utilization. Some of these asteroids are um, full of water, and water, as you know, can be broken down to hydrogen and oxygen, and so you will have enough resources to, to exist in a small colony. Well, finally, Paul, you're working on this now. You're a young guy. You figure... Uh, Figure you're going to go. I mean, is somebody going to go within within a, a lifetime? I, I think the possibility is is there that someone, a human being, or human beings, will be sent to an asteroid to explore an asteroid within our lifetimes. I, I think that's fully possible with the systems and technologies we have today. Paul Abel, thanks so much for uh, talking with me. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Paul Abel is a planetary geologist at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, but. Really, is it a serious idea that someday we would live on an asteroid? No, it sounds unattractive, but here's the deal. The point is there's just a lot of available real estate there. The problem with the Earth, fundamentally, is that it's round. So although there's a lot of stuff in the Earth, there isn't too much of this surface area, too much acreage. Now, if you could slice the Earth into two halves and then roll up each of those halves, well, you'd gain about 25% in terms of the acreage. Sounds like an experiment you could do with some pizza dough. Yes, yes. (laughs) Harder to do it with the Earth. Now, but having done that, you might as well slice each of those two balls in two, and you'd get another 25% increase in surface area. And so then you slice those four balls in two, you get another 25%, and so forth. Okay, okay. So those asteroids are, in a way, one large world divided into small parts, with a lot more surface area. So it's not all about location, location, location. It's about surface area, surface area, surface area. Cheap land, if you will. Yes, there's about 10,000 times as much acreage on the asteroids as we have here on Earth. Well, these are precisely the kinds of space stories that fuel Richard Hollingham. He's as much into the final frontier as political junkies are into the electoral contests. He's a journalist and presenter of Space Boffins podcast for the BBC. Richard, you are a self-described space enthusiast, aren't you? I love space. I mean, I liken space journalism to sports journalism. You're not really, it's not proper journalism. You're not particularly questioning because you're such a fan. You know, you're there cheering at the sidelines. You go and see these amazing satellites and rockets and space planes and you you want them to succeed. You want them to work. You're saying right now you're not objective when you're when it comes to reporting on space it's not hard to be wholly objective i'm uh, generally i'm a glass half empty kind of person but when it comes to space i'm very much a, a glass half full i am very optimistic and i i want these things to work you know i want space programs to succeed and whenever i cover a mission and it never quite gets there you know missions go through so many stages uh, there was one recently proposed to Saturn's moon Titan. I mean, Saturn's moon Titan is an incredible place. It's got these hydrocarbon clouds. It's got methanol, ethanol lakes. It's such a weird place. And, you know, we've landed this probe on it. It's lasted for 10 minutes. That's all we've got. So say more about your enthusiasm for space and, and what that means, because it sounds like you mean space with a capital S. Anything that's out there, the moon, the other planets, and beyond your for exploration, why? I suppose fundamentally we know that, I mean, it's going to be a few billion years, but the Earth will be wiped out. We will cease to exist. We'll either wipe ourselves out or ultimately the, the cosmos will conspire against us and we will be wiped out. 
if humans are to survive, if human beings are to survive and go on to that Star Trek universe or that Doctor Who universe, we've got to leave the Earth. And in the same way we explore the Earth, I always wanted to be an explorer. When I was 10 years old, I wanted to be an explorer. And we pretty much explored the Earth. You could argue we haven't explored the oceans properly. But surely this is the next frontier, is to go out into space. And I'm very much an advocate of, of human space flight or things humans can do or, or making space more accessible. Mm-hmm. I love NASA's phrase. I think it is making space for everyone. I'm kind of with that. I mean, I think there are, there are many aspects of this. I think, you know, there's a place for robotic missions. I would like to see a return of humans to the moon and then on to Mars. But there's so many challenges to overcome uh, to do that. But I also think it's exciting all the small satellites and the low-budget satellites that are making Earth orbit missions more accessible. And, you know, students can build satellites now. It's still an enormous cost in launching them. But, you know, it, space is becoming more accessible. Now, you've had your enthusiasm for space for a long time, or at least your enthusiasm for exploration. You said as a, as a young boy, you wanted to be an explorer. What did you imagine explorer explored back then? Well, see, when I was, I'm not that old. <laughs> there was still, you know, the, emphasis, the Earth was pretty much explored. Yeah, the but I wasn't wanted on... to be, and my hero, and still is, is uh, Scott of the Antarctic. So the flawed British hero who got to the South Pole second and died on the return. So those golden age of exploration, those people, they were my heroes. I wanted to be Scott of the Antarctic. There are pictures of me uh, in the height of a British summer. I mean, this was a very hot summer, 1977. I mean, nowhere near as hot as a California summer, but pretty hot. Um, Dressed up in a coat and uh, hat, woolen hat, um, dragging a makeshift sledge across the lawn, uh, piled high with provisions uh, as we uh, simulated our uh, our exploration of Antarctica. Well, there is a parallel, isn't there, to um, the first explorers of any new continent? I mean, even the explorers who who discovered, as it were, America, but also the ones that went to the South Pole because. They didn't know what they would find, and you had to go into the unknown, not knowing if you would return, and really not knowing what was over the horizon. And that's very much the way that we would treat space travel. You're going off in one direction. You don't know what you will find. I think it's exactly the same. I think the frustrating thing, particularly about the moon, is that if you compare it to Antarctica, there was... uh, Scott's expedition, Amundsen's expedition, then Shackleton went back. There was a series of expeditions, um, and it went on and on until I probably culminated in the crossing of Antarctica in the late 1950s. So you had this final great expedition. But there were bases all the way round, and you know now you've got pretty much established. You know, All year round there are people living and working in Antarctica. I would say the moon is similar, and yet 40 years on... And we've still not gone back. And that's what I find frustrating. And there is this argument that there's this this window of opportunity and this window is closing. If we don't get off the Earth soon, if we don't start making our way to the moon and onto Mars and, and looking, I don't know, at starships in 100 years' time or 200 years' time, that we will never do it. So your interest is in the exploration, but it sounds like you're interested also in finding Earth 2.0, meaning part of the reason we explore is practical because we may need to find a place to go to when we're done with this planet. Yeah, I I think, yes, I probably do. I probably watch too much Star Trek. 
uh, is it possible for a science reporter to watch too much, too much Star, Star Trek? Trek? Yeah, harder to, yeah. Yeah, to imagine. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm I'm also an environmentalist. So, you know, I think we should do what we can to, to preserve the earth and protect the environment and protect biodiversity. But at the same time, you think, well, actually, maybe there are more resources than just the earth. We should be looking to resources out there and we should be looking to, to move out there ultimately. Now, you have a lot of enthusiasm. Where where do you see that reflected around the world? As a reporter, you're a science reporter, you report on space. As you know, the American space program is not what it once was. We don't even have a shuttle now to um, to go back into space. Um, and so we're dependent on other countries if we're to do that. Is the enthusiasm for space waning in the U.S. from your perspective abroad in the U.K.? And uh, is it picking up in other places? And if so, where? I think it's actually a really exciting time. You look in the United States with, I mean, SpaceX, they get all the publicity. But there are plenty of other small private companies that are looking to explore and exploit space. I don't like the word exploit, uh, because that rather implies we'll do to space what we did to the Earth. But um, you've got all these companies, some will, some will fail, but many will succeed, I hope. So that's what's happening in the, the Western world. Uh, European Space Agency, I mean, the funding there is pretty much stable. And there's a lot of ambition. And it also seems to get done a bit quicker in Europe. Even though there are lots of dif- disparate countries speaking different languages, things seem to happen quicker than they do in the United States with NASA. And then, of course, you've got the politically motivated countries to explore space like uh, China and India, for example, where space is all about prestige as much as usefulness. So they'll have Earth observation satellites looking down on the Earth, but you know China building a space station. And you've got China talking about going to the moon. You've got an Indian mission to the moon coming up fairly soon, an orbital mission. Um, but that's about prestige. That's great because you need a bit of that. You need a bit of competition. And even Russia's getting back into it now and back into space science, even though they've had a series of failures. You know, they're getting back into that. So I actually think there's quite a lot going on. And at the other end, I spoke to a, a guy who's uh, from Cornell University today um, who's currently working at uh, NASA Ames here in uh, in Silicon Valley. And um, he's working on a satellite that's crowdfunded through Kickstarter. So he's raised funds for lots of people who are going to part-own this satellite. So it's going to be like the people's how, satellite. How much has he raised? I mean, a satellite takes uh, a bit well, of cash. Well, this is the, yeah, the big big deal. I think he's raised about $30,000. So you can build a satellite for not very much money. I mean, you know, if we had the expertise, if I had the expertise, I could build a satellite. Richard, and I understand on the on the BBC website and the Futures website, space is one of the most uh, uh, popular topics. Yeah, any story. It doesn't have to be. I mean, I'm not. It's not just the stuff I write, but anything we put on BBC Future that's space related that always hits the highest. You sure you it's know? not just what you're writing? Oh, it's obviously my fantastic <laughs> writing. But I mean, I obsessively follow, obviously, you know, how many people read my pieces because I have very low self esteem. Um, that's what all writers do. But. No, really, space is the thing that hits the highest. That's the thing that people want to read about. That's the thing that people are interested in. And there's genuine excitement. I mean, that's what we're trying to tap into. There's genuine excitement and optimism that there's loads going on in space at the moment. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.
Richard Hollingham is a science journalist and a broadcaster living in the UK. His podcast about space is Space Boffins. And we're making more space for space coming up. As the world's turn on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Did you ever want to go into space, Seth? Oh, for sure. I mean, when I was a youngster, the Hayden Planetarium in New York was handing out tickets for anyone who wanted to be on the first rocket to the moon. And and you took one, I guess. Well, you bet your moon boots, of course. <laughs> Did that get you aboard Apollo 11? Look, if I'd gotten aboard Apollo 11, my autograph would be worth a lot more on eBay these days. Is your autograph on eBay at Well, all? no, because it's not worth anything. <laughs> but, but it was years before I figured out that those tickets were just a marketing stunt. I mean, I was devastated. That's really sweet. How old were you? 28. You were not. Yeah, I was, actually. But <laughs> Well, do you still want to leave Earth and go into the final frontier? Yeah, of course. But I'd probably insist on better food en route than I would have as a kid. But, you know, it's not such but a— But you were 28. I consider that a kid. Look, <laughs> you know, it's not such a crazy wish anymore. What with private companies gearing up to build rockets that could take you out to orbit or even beyond. Orbital Sciences Corporation, Planet Space, Virgin Galactic, Bigelow Aerospace, Scale Composites, Space Dev, Reaction Engines. I mean, the list is long, and that's just some of the companies. These space cowboys got tired of waiting for and depending on governments to give them a ride into space, so they took the matter into their own hands. And uh, in the news a lot these days is the company SpaceX, They've successfully transported payloads to the International Space Station. Their hardware has left the drawing boards, left the machine shop, and left the launch pad. I cornered Barry Matsumori, a senior vice president for commercial sales and business development at SpaceX, when I was at a big space conference in Naples, Italy, and I asked, why is it that space is suddenly moving from government enterprise to private enterprise? Barry, 50 years ago, even putting a uh, toaster-sized object into orbit required a massive government effort, thousands of engineers, billions of dollars. What's changed to make this tractable for a startup company? Certainly putting objects in space as a technical challenge has become more straightforward in a sense. The business is still very risky. The technology still has lots of challenges. People can get objects to space. Uh, I think the technology has proven that. As such, the question is, can we get it there, uh, get access to space lowered? And if that can be done, then hopefully what happens is we generate this engine of building commerce in space. Well, it seems that the first customer is going to be uh, governments that need to ferry things, for example, to the uh, International Space Station or whatever, resupply something, put up satellites, whatever. That's the government. But what about the commercial market? Our first customer was actually a commercial customer. On a Falcon 1, we put an object into space. Uh, It's a Razak sat. So, in fact, we started commercial. Uh, We certainly have some customers that are government entities, 
but those are commercial contracts and commercial transactions. And then starting next year, we are going to have uh, more of our commercial launches uh, taking place. What about the, uh, if you will, the private market, you know, space tourism? When can I buy a ticket to go into orbit? Space tourism, I think it's a few years away. SpaceX and a few other companies are participating in something called commercial crew that will allow astronauts and others to get to the space station. On top of that, there are some other programs to take individuals into space on a private basis outside of SpaceX. And so it'll happen. It's just going to take a bit of time. Well, one of your competitors indeed would, uh, you know, sign me up for a trip, but I think that the cost is hundreds of thousands of dollars, which uh, exceeds my allowance. So is, is that price going to really come down or is it going to stay high? Is this something for, you know, the rich and famous? Certainly hate to project what pricing is going to do, but I can put it this way. If access takes place for space tourism, it's because the price has been lowered. If it, is, it stays at the level it's at, it will be for a certain set of population that can afford it. And what about going farther than orbit? Uh, will SpaceX ever build a craft that can take uh, you know, individuals to the moon or even beyond to Mars? It's uh, early in the company. It's been a vision about us supporting interplanetary travel. When that will take place, unknown. Uh, it, it is something that we've talked about since our early days of what, uh, what we want to do with SpaceX. Well, finally, Barry, for a dozen years now, people have talked of building a space elevator, which is a whole different way of getting into space, and one that might, uh, you know, if they build it, and the timescales sound like 35, 40 years, but if they actually build this thing, wouldn't that kill the rocket business? Uh, potentially so. I hate to speculate on something that is pretty darn far in the future for all of us. Barry Matsumori, thank you so much for talking with me. All right, thank you much. Barry Matsumori is Senior Vice President for Commercial Sales and Business Development at SpaceX Corporation in Hawthorne, California. Well, too bad he couldn't give you a discount on a business class seat on one of these vehicles. Yeah, well, I could have certainly used that. It's, you know, you get a better class of movies. But there's another technology coming down the pike that might really drop the price of getting into orbit. (laughs) (coughs) Okay, let's see now. I think he said third floor... First floor, low Earth orbit, spy satellites, Earth mineral mappers. <laughs> Second floor, polar orbits, medium Earth orbits, surveillance satellites. <laughs> Third floor, geosynchronous orbit, television and radio broadcast, weather satellites. <laughs> oh, wait, that's me. Third floor. Oh, darn. Fourth floor, exit here for connecting service to the moon, Mars, the outer solar system, or just an awesome view. I missed my stop again. What did I press? Going down. But could there really be a space elevator? Well, indeed there could be, and it would revolutionize getting into space, according to Pete Swan, space system engineer and vice president of International Space Elevator Consortium at that same Naples conference. Peter, to get into orbit today, just for the grins or the view, might cost me a few hundred thousand dollars. What might it cost if I were taking a space elevator? The space elevator estimate is about $500 a kilogram. So how much do you weigh? 50 kilograms or so? So multiply by 50 kilograms. That's probably two orders of magnitude cheaper than spaceflight by rockets. 
So, so 100 times cheaper. I, by the way, I appreciate you lowballing my weight. But that, so 100 times cheaper than using a rocket. Yes. And not only that, but there are so many aspects of a space elevator that are beneficial. There's no shake, rattle, and roll, so your design of the spacecraft is simplified. There's no real space issue. You don't have to fit in the shuttle bay compartment. There's no environmental impact to the size we're talking about with rockets. And there's the almost zero probability of any explosion or anything like that. So the space elevator benefits are overwhelming when you compare it against rockets. Maybe you can just tell me, how does the space elevator actually work? You know, where's the elevator shaft? Where's the elevator? Okay, the concept is very simple. What we do is we run a string down from geosynchronous orbit, at the same time running one up so that the center of mass stays at the same location in geosynchronous orbit. Run the string down to the ground, grab it, and then you increase the size of the string incrementally until you have a one meter wide ribbon that goes from the surface of the Earth, say an aircraft carrier on the bottom for mass and structure, and you put a thousand people down for lunch, and you run this space tether straight up 100,000 kilometers. The dynamics that keeps it there are similar to taking a rock and a string above your head and tossing it around your head. So the string is in tension, it stays straight, and is stable. Okay, so this is a Jack and the Beanstalk, except you have a high-tech beanstalk, and instead of Jack, you have, I don't know, payloads or people going into orbit. Where, where would you build this thing? Could you have one in every city? The engineering answer is you want to be on the equator. It's the most efficient ride to orbit because you lose energy if you go off the equator. Then you want to start on the ocean in a quiescent area such as a place a 1,000 miles to the west of Ecuador, which is only one recorded lightning strike a year, no hurricane cyclones, etc. for the last 100 years, no rogue waves, and uh, no real wind. So it's a quiescent place where you can place your base of the space elevator. Now, Peter, since this thing would immediately dominate the launch industry, you would sweep up all that business, uh, why haven't we built it yet? Everything is doable on the space elevator except the material for the tether. It turns out that a material was discovered about 20 years ago called carbon nanotubes. It's being developed and pushed very hard by terrestrial businesses such as aeronautical firms, automobile hood firms, uh, bridge building, wire cable firms. The material is being pushed to increase its strength to weight ratio so that it would be a thousand times better than steel. So what's missing is the beanstalk technology fundamentally. When, when do you expect that to get to where it needs to be for you to actually build this thing? The argument today is when will the carbon nanotube tethers be manufacturable in high quality for long lengths? Anywhere from 2015 to 2025 is probably a good guess. I don't believe that anybody today can tell you it's going to be within two or three years. And I also firmly believe we probably need some type of little jump in technology that really, really helps specific strength. Okay, so suppose we actually build this thing, we got this ribbon going up uh, 60,000 miles, 100,000 kilometers up into, uh, up into the air. How long would it take the elevator to get up to, say, geosynchronous orbit? 
The plan right now is one ribbon rider, tether climber, to take seven days to go from the surface to the geosynchronous location. The idea is that we would have one launch a day or six to seven on the tether at any one time. Each would be a total of 20 tons, six metric tons of spacecraft, and 14 metric tons of payload. That's fantastic. Well, one last question, Peter. If I ride the space elevator 30 years from now, assuming I'm around to do it, to uh, that resort uh, hotel in the sky, am I going to have to listen to insipid music all the way up? Oh, the music will be much better in 30 years, I'm sure. No problem. (laughs) Peter Swan, thank you so much for talking with me. Okay, thank you. Peter Swan is a space system engineer and vice president of the International Space Elevator Consortium. So there are many different destinations, Seth, for travel throughout the solar system. Yeah, and we say that somewhat matter-of-factly. But, you know, I'm just thinking back to the time of the Apollo moon missions. You know, nobody was thinking then about going to an asteroid or, or even really about going to Mars. That was all so distant into the future. And we're going beyond that, even to the moons of Jupiter, and we may take a rocket for some of these destinations, or we may get aboard a space elevator. And on that uplifting note, we say thank you to our always elevated production staff, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Jay Weiler. Also support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to As the World's Turn. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook, become a fan of the program, Big Picture Science. You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because you find it more elevating, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Fifth Floor the moon. Oh, I missed it again. Jeez. Going down and someone changed this music. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.